I know. Uh, I love all of that. Thank you. All right, I got to start. Okay, good morning. We need to get started uh, five minutes ago. <laughs> So forgive me, uh, and I have quite a few slides this time, so I was telling Suzanne, I should spend probably no more than two minutes per slide, maybe three on a couple, and so I, I was telling Suzanne, if it gets to be four, give me this so I, I know I'm not flying. So anyway, let's take a moment and pray because this is an important chapter. This is an important lesson, so let's pray about it. Thank you, Father, for a chance to be here again on a Thursday and surround ourselves, Father, with kindred spirits and mostly, Father, to immerse ourselves in your spirit. May you have a seat, Lord, in this room. May your will be done. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart please you, oh God. Let us learn from James this morning what we need to know in order to live our best life for you. For we prayed in the name of Jesus and for his glory. Amen. James chapter 4. Here's what I want you to know about the book of James. We, um, Elizabeth, I thought you were having surgery. Okay. See that she's limping. She's getting a new hip next Tuesday. Okay. So we'll see Elizabeth when she's not limping so much, right? All right, um, so we are looking at James. It, remember, the, the only way to study this, well, really the whole book, but especially last week, this week, next week, is to remember why James wrote this letter. His church got scattered after the stoning of Stephen, and he knew that he had these Jewish people that he was sending out to live in a Gentile world. And they had been born, raised, reared to be good Jewish people. And now, in fact, good Jewish people didn't have anything to do with Gentiles. Now, as a Christian, they were supposed to embrace and minister to and include Gentiles. So the best way I know how to describe James's heart in writing the letter, as best I understand it, is most of us sent a child off to college. And if you haven't yet, for those of you who are younger, this isn't this will happen to you. We sent them off, and when we got ready that last week, you know, I used to say it looked like Bed Bath and Beyond had spilled a truck into my dining room. But we got all the stuff ready, right? And then all that summer before we sent them off, things would come to our mind like, now don't, you know, they'd leave, uh, they'd leave their bank card sitting out on the kitchen counter. I said, now don't do that in the dorm room, right? And, uh, you know, keep up with yourself. And I get, mine had a gas card because I always wanted them to be able to come home. But they were on their own money-wise, you know. But they had a gas card. And I said, don't leave this gas card, you know, just laying around, keep it close to you. And all those little moments, those little things that you try to say so that they're ready to go. And I said, don't, don't be, you, you be careful with those girls because you're good looking and you could be a target, you know, 
pick a good one. You know, we, it's all of those things we tell our kids to get them ready to go away and be on their own. Think about what you said. That's this letter. It's not James chewing them up. It's not James uh, getting mad at them. It, it's, it's James knowing what's going to happen when you immerse a protected, careful uh, Jewish person and throw them into the middle of a Gentile world with permission to love them. Not only that, a calling to love them and to be in the world, but not of it. So he's hoping to get them strong, ready. He's hoping to keep them focused and centered on their original faith and not lose it. I, uh, when Jim asked me to marry him, I told him yes. And then the very next thing I said was, I'm not raising PKs, which is preacher's kids. I said, just so you know, I said, yes, I worked in the financial aid office at Houston Baptist University, and we gave grants, and more preacher's kids and missionary kids lost their money than anybody else, right? That's what I was trying to say. That's why, and that's, I parented my, my boys with that in mind, that I didn't want them to be PKs in the traditional sense. They were, but we did our best. So anyway, that's James. I am not flying, am I? So this is not James criticizing how they're living. He's, it's James warning them, you're going to be tempted to live this way. Why? Because we all are. But he's trying to protect these Jewish people that he loves who are sent out into a Gentile world. So he writes a letter. It's to them, the Christians that are scattered. He wants to remind them of the basic principles. I've been enthralled this round through James at how much it is a re-preaching of the Sermon on the Mount. It ties in with everything. That was, uh, that was like Jesus' Magna Carta, the Sermon on the Mount. Almost, they, some say every other sermon he ever did all goes back to reteaching Sermon on the Mount. He, help, he wants them to maintain a strong witness in a Gentile surrounding, even though there's unsaved people all around him. And he wants to help him with the problems he knows are part of living immersed in an ungodly culture. That's why I think every January we ought to look at the book of James. It recenters you back into, okay, this is my highest life and how I live it. That's the book of James. And it's so crucial to start a new year. And if you've gotten a degree or two off one way or the other, to bring you back into the middle. And it's just, I, it's a good refresher course. I love the book of James. It's not chewing us up. It is strengthening us for the ones that will try to chew us up. And James is a perfect book to ground our faith for this next year. You cannot do this lesson today unless you go back to last week's lesson and quote this verse. We divide the book of James into chapters. Uh, a week has come and gone since we said this. And you can't fully understand what James is saying unless you know what he just said. He just said, who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds 
done in the humility that comes from wisdom. Where does wisdom come from? God. He has just said, you need to pay attention to the wise and understanding. If you want to be wise and understanding, pay attention to your good deeds. That's this week's lesson. Pay attention to your deeds. And then you'll know if your life is being born out of God's wisdom because you're humble enough to know you need it or not. Now, I basically just taught you James chapter 4 in that one statement. So we can fly now, right? So he then goes on and says, what causes all the fights and quarrels within you, these wars? Remember, he's speaking to Christians. Christians not only have battles with people outside of our faith, we also battle mostly with our own selves. We also battle with people in the faith. Jim used to come home and he said, it's not the sinners that are killing me, it's the saints. <laughs> so he, it's... What is this battle? Where does it come from? We desire things we don't have, and we want them. Uh, we desire but don't have, so we kill. When you see the word murder in James chapter 4, it can mean the taking of another person's life. But remember, Jesus elevated murder to include murdering someone's reputation, murdering someone's potential taking things out of their life that keep them from having what God wanted them to have. We murder people when we slander. We murder people's future when we chase them out of the church where they needed to grow. We have murdered people by not being the Christians that we ought to be. He says, we covet but cannot get. Covet is also raised. I sometimes tease one of y'all, if you walk in with a really cute jacket or a really cute something on, I, I might come up to you and go, okay, this is kind of making me covet, <laughs> right? I, it's one of my, I, I never know what to get when I go shopping, which is why I buy stuff on QVC. And I mean, I don't know. I'm not good at it. And so sometimes I see somebody and they're just like, and I go, oh, I covet. But that's not covet only. Here's what covet also means. It means that I like what you have on and I want to have it instead of you. It's not just wanting something for myself. It's me wanting it instead of you having it. It's walking into someone's house and thinking it's better than your own and you want them to have your house so you can have theirs. Okay, that's the level of the word covet in Je Jesus redefined it to that level. And he says we don't have because we don't ask God. And we're like, yeah, we ask God all the time. And then he goes on to explain what he means by that. I used Psalm 37, 4. Do what the Lord wants and he will give you your heart's desire. Delight in the Lord. When the Bible says God will give you the desires of your heart, it does not mean what it meant when you read that and you were 16. And you bowed your head and go, Lord, I want this car. I want this guy. I want this, you know, life. That's not what it means. To pray that God will give you the desires of your heart 
means that you want God to author what you should want. You want the desires of your heart to be born out of this relationship with God. It's not that God gives you what you want. It's that God gives you what to want. That's what that verse means. And we mess that up. And we think, well, God's not answering my prayer. The next verse explains why. He says, when you ask, you do not receive. Why? Because you ask with wrong motives. That you may spend what you get on your pleasures. If the beginning of your prayer is, Lord, I really want, you might back up and go, okay, never mind. That doesn't matter. Lord, I don't know what to want. I feel this way, but I don't know if that's what you want for my life. That's what he's saying. You don't pray. If your motive is self, you run the risk of being motivated by sin. Jim has an illustration where the middle letter of sin is the letter I. And he says, so if it starts with I, rethink it. You know, because that's the road to sin so much of the time. We don't always have pure motives. He goes on to explain why. He says we're an adulterous people. Remember, this letter is written to Jewish people. They were raised to know that Israel was a chosen people, the chosen people of God. It's the same word for chosen that we might use in a wedding ceremony. Jim uses that word when he marries somebody. He says, I choose you. I choose you to be my own. It's that notion. God chose us to be his children when we chose his son to be our Lord and Savior. God chose us then as his family. We are a chosen people. Israel knew that. That's what they thought of themselves. Well, it doesn't really matter. We're chosen by God, right? We can still feel that way. He says this, the closest thing that God has in this world to describing his love for you is the marriage relationship. That's why the Bible talks about an adulterous people so much. They use adultery as an illustration. And in this room, some of you know firsthand what that kind of betrayal of love feels like. And you know when you read that, you know what God means by that. It's a betrayal of love. God loves you with a passionate love. The closest thing that describes the love of God in your life is the love that you share with one other person in this world, ideally. And you are loyal to each other. And there's one person in this world who knows you better than anybody else and still loves you anyway. And you live for each other. And they're number one. The marriage relationship is the closest understanding in Scripture to the way God wants you to know he feels about you. And when James writes, you adulterous people, they would have known what he meant. 
He meant you're loving other things, either along with God or instead of God or more than God. Adulterous people means you've given your love away, your priorities away from God to other things. And then he says, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Remember last week when he said you can't get uh, salt water and fresh water out of the same spring. You can't love God and love the world at the same time. Can't be done. And that's what he's saying. Every time you choose to love the world more than what God or who God is in your life, you've committed adultery, in essence, spiritually. He says, therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes, becomes an enemy of God. That seems harsh, a little severe. It's not. He's talking not about, he's talking about your heart, your priorities, what drives you. Um, if something big happens, the first person I want to talk to is Jim. If there is a problem in my life and something's come up, I want to pick the phone up and call Jim. I want to know that whatever happens in my future, I can count on Jim to help me through it. He's the first one I'm to lean on. That's what marriage is. And to be friends with somebody else, to include someone else, when I should have put Jim first in that, is to be at war with what God wants in our lives. That's what God's trying to say to them, or James is trying to say to his people. You can't love God enough. And if anyone else comes ahead of God in your life, then you've misplaced your love. He goes on to explain that. I always say Hosea is my example in scripture of what is meant by an adulterous people. Remember Hosea the prophet, God went to Hosea and he said, I want you to marry Gomer, a prostitute. And the reason Hosea married Gomer was because God needed his prophet to understand how it felt to him to love these people so much and then to have to watch them worship Asherah and Baal and do all the things in the world. He said, I need somebody to understand how I feel when my people worship false gods. So he married a prostitute. My, one of my life verses, and I think the verse that probably is behind my teaching and what I write, what I do, I know this to be true. God told Hosea, the prophet, he said, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. It's not information. It's they don't know me. My people are destroyed because they don't know me. They don't know how I feel about them. That is happening in our culture today. 
people are content to know about God. And instead, they need to know God. Know is the same word that is used when it says to know a person in the biblical sense. The deepest, most profound relationship in this world that's with one other person according to the laws, according ideally, one person that you love that way. That's the word know. We are to love God with an exclusive, passionate, intimate love. That's what he's saying. That's God's heart for you and I. That's how God loves you. That's what he says in the next verse. Do you think scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? God has planted within you. This, we can, can it's not the Holy Spirit because it's not capitalized, yet it is what the spirit causes, the Holy Spirit causes in our life. It's the spirit of love. It's the spirit of knowing God. That's why God's jealous. He longs for that in your life more than anything else. If there was one thing God could ask of you, it would be, will you love me? Will you love me like I love you? And the answer honestly, is no, I never will. For all the reasons James is about to talk about. But I will say, it should be the highest, holiest effort in your life to know God and to love him like he loves you. Thankfully, verse 6, he gives us more grace. He knows we will never love him as much as he loves us. And so he gives us grace. Imagine being married to somebody that you know you will always love more than he loves you. And you have a little window into how God feels. So, that's why scripture says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Why? God opposes anything in your life that will harm you, that will hurt you. He opposes the sense of pride because pride is saying, I don't need you. I don't need your love. He gives grace, favor to the humble. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are the people who know how much they need God because they will make him king. That's what that beatitude means. That's what this means. Blessed are you when you realize how desperately you need God because then you'll know to make him king and then he can pour his favor and blessing into your life. The humble people are those who are willing to submit their wills to God's. And that's why he says, the road to humility, 
That's my phrase. But he says next, submit yourselves then, therefore, to God. Resist the devil. Let me stop there. Submit yourself then to God. How do you submit yourself to God today? This is the this is the way to submit yourself and to make God king of your life, to make Jesus not just your Savior, but your Lord. This is how you do it. First thing he says, resist the devil. If you do not do daily battle with Satan, you're not messing with, uh, with him very much. If you're not doing this, as Jim would say, if you're not doing this with the devil, you're probably doing this. And that's just the way it is. For those of us in ministry, we walk around knowing we have a great big Target t-shirt on all the time. Because it, you can't do ministry and not take some significant hits. Can't be done. It's just the way it is. You have to resist the devil. Because if you know that those thoughts come from him, if you know that those suggestions are partial truth and therefore from Satan, not God, you can resist believing that. You can resist falling into accepting it into your life. Resist the devil because when you do, he just goes and finds somebody else. He takes off and goes and finds somebody else to tempt. Resist. Fight Satan. And if you think he's not messing in your life, you're wrong. He is. He'll mess with your thoughts. He'll mess with your choices. He'll mess with your feelings. We're women. He's big on emotional abuse, right? Resist what the devil is trying to do in your life, and he'll flee from you. Come near to God. That's how you resist the devil. Tell dad on him. Take it to your father and just tell God on him. He's beating me up, Lord. Take him out. I, it's one of my favorite prayers. He's beating me up. And um, that is the way it works. You draw near to God because Satan might mess with you, but you get close to your dad. Your dad is bigger than he is, right? Come near to God. He will come near to you. I love the picture of a child who gets afraid and starts running to mom. And mom sees her child scared and running towards her. What does she do? Just wait there for the child? No, she takes off and starts running for her child. That's this picture. Come near to God and he'll run right to you too. Wash your hands, you sinners. If you think you're not a sinner, you just sinned. Okay? We're all sinners. What do we do? We sin. Don't live with it. Clean yourselves up. Wash it away. You know how to do it. Confess your sins and he's faithful and just to forgive you your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness, from all penalty of that. You can be right with God again, but you've got to cleanse yourself of those sins that keep coming back in. And if you really cleanse yourself, you're a lot less likely to want to get dirty the next time. Purify your hearts. This is the process of the fire, the purification. Go through the consequences. Go through the discipline, the spiritual discipline of making yourself better, 
cleansing yourself, purifying yourself. And that means submitting yourself to the fire to get purified. Why? Because we're double-minded. Because we like the world and we like Jesus, right? Double-minded means that you can be swayed or influenced by God and by the world. And then he says something that's just strange. He says, grieve, mourn, and wail. Well, if you're teaching this to non-Christians, this is what, I mean, this, can, this is like a Debbie Downer message, if you do it that way. He goes on to say next that the way, the real way for to be humble is to change. He says, change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. That's actually good news. Don't, don't let us think that wailing and mourning, it goes directly to what Jesus meant when he said, blessed are those who mourn. We see that at the bottom of funeral uh, programs all the time. It totally doesn't mean that. Not that he won't take care of somebody who's grieving. This beatitude literally means blessed are the people who grieve their sin because they will get rid of it. Oh, that's not the beatitude, but that's the way I put it. <laughs> blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. Your comfort is in getting rid of the sin, not in feeling better about it. Blessed are you when you grieve a loss of blessing in your life. Blessed are the people who grieve being separated from God as their king because that's what sin does in our life. It separates us from the one who loves us most. Blessed are you when you feel that way about your sin because God's going to fix it. He's going to lift you up. It's the mother running and the child running together. And what's the first thing the mom does? That child, I don't care if that child's in third grade, is in their mother's arms. Well, God's strong. He doesn't just embrace you. He lifts you up out of it. That's what this says. And so James goes on to say that we know if there's an evidence, it, we, we can, it's a surefire way of knowing if you're humble enough, okay? This is, I, I would like to skip the next two slides, but I won't because James wrote it. There's an, a lack of humility in your life if you find yourself slandering others. Brothers and sisters, again, remember, this is to Christians, this isn't to the world. This is never the way the world is going to think. It is the way Christians need to think. He says, don't slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. Why is that true? Why does slander break God's law? Because when we judge the law, we're not keeping it. We're sitting in judgment on it. Why? Because the law said, don't judge. And here's the reason. There is only one lawgiver and judge. And why? Why can't some of us sit in judgment? We've studied scripture. We know what it says, right? We can, why can't we sit in judgment? We know what the Bible says. Because there's only one who is able it's one of the most important verses, life-changing verses in James chapter 4. You 
are able to discern a sin in someone's life. You are not able to judge it. And there's a big difference in those two things. God's given some of us the gift slash curse of discernment. If your gift is discernment, your number one sin is slander. I know that without even having to wonder, unless you are so fully admitted, uh, submitted to God that he has control over every word out of your mouth. It's hard to know that there's a sin in someone's life and not speak into it, not judge them for embracing that sin. It's hard. So if your gift is discernment, camp here. You're going to have to battle it because we do tend to let discernment leak into judgment, right? The one who, there's only one who's able to judge. There's a lot of Christians who are able to discern. So own the difference in those two things. And if you didn't get it, the next line will help. Who are you to judge your neighbor? We'd go back to Jesus saying, whoever's without sin can throw that first rock, right? And then clunk, clunk all around the, we're all, we're all in need of God's grace. So what's some other evidence? It's this. Are you living your plan for your life or are you living God's? He says, now listen. This is James saying, pay attention. What I'm about to tell you is important. Now listen, you who say today or tomorrow we'll go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, make money. Why? You don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? It's a myth that appears for a little while and then vanishes. First century, it took them sometimes a year to make a trip. By the time they packed for it, carried what they needed, made it to the other city, did the business there and got home, it could be a year that they spent on the road away. What are you to decide, I'm going to go to this city? What is your life? We're, it's not ours to plan. We don't know what's on the road. You can't know if you're going to have good business there. He gives you the solution. The evidence of a humble life is here's what we do instead. You ought to say, if it's the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it's a sin for them. In other words, if your life is submitted to God, you have no idea what you're going to do next week. You really don't. You can make a plan, but God can change it. It's Henry Blackaby's statement that when you made him Lord, you gave him permission to interrupt your plans. That's what this is saying. He's king. He's Lord. Make plans. But God has the right to interrupt your life with another one at any moment. And your plan isn't your best life. God's plan is your best life. For I know the plans I have for you says who? Not your friend, not your accountant, not your financial advisor, not your mother. You know, I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. It's the plan that will prosper you, not harm you. It's the plan that will give you the hope in the future I want for you. 
That's Jeremiah 29, 11. It was true in the Old Testament. It's true in the New Testament. It's true today. God does have a solid plan for your life. And if you are humble, if you know how greatly you are loved, you will choose his plan instead of your own. I've learned that one the hard way. His plan is always better than whatever I came up with. I've also learned not to make a plan because it is God's way of saying, uh, I'm God, you're not, that's never happening. Make a plan, it's never happening, is the way we do it. So James didn't write his letter to condemn. Please know that, and please know that as you do next week's lesson. He's telling you how you can live your best life. He didn't write it to condemn, he wrote it to counsel. Receive his teaching as counsel for your best life with God. He tells us what we need to know in order to live for God's purpose. His key lessons, the way we treat others is our witness to the world. The way we think about ourselves also is a witness to what we believe about God. The way we feel about sin is a witness to what we believe matters most. And the way to follow as a witness is to make sure you are led. That's the key lessons in the book of James so far. Jim was preaching a sermon last Sunday at our little chapel service, and he did it kind of as a January service, you know, here in January. Let's, let's look at how we manage our time. His first point was to care as much about the value of our days, time, as God cares about it. His second point was to manage your time with the skill and the Spirit's guidance. You don't know how to live your year unless the Holy Spirit guides you all year long. And his third point was this, and this is why I put this in. He said, change the world or the world will change you. And it really is that clear. That's what James is saying. If your goal is not God's to change and minister to this world, help people know God, if that's not your goal, then the world will start changing you. The only way to live consistently with God is to care about what God cares about. Jim used this Henry Nouwen quote in his sermon to kind of illustrate that fact. Uh, Henry Nouwen is brilliant. And he wrote, as long as I keep running about asking, do you love me? That means to the world. We run around to the world saying, do you love me? Do you love me? As long as I keep doing that, do you really love me? I give all power to the voices of the world and put myself in bondage because the world is filled with ifs. The world says, yes, I love you, if you are good-looking, intelligent, and wealthy. I love you if you have a good education, a good job, and good connections. I love you if you produce much, sell much, and buy much. There are endless ifs hidden in the world's love. These ifs enslave me. 
since it's impossible to respond adequately to all of them. The world's love is and always will be conditional. As long as I keep looking for my true self in the world of conditional love, I will remain hooked to the world, trying, failing, and trying again. It is a world that fosters addictions because what it offers cannot satisfy the deepest craving of my heart. Now I want to tuck your feet in because this is going to hurt. This quote applies to the hood almost as much as it applies anywhere in the world. You know what I mean by the hood, right? We went to college. We learned. We got a piece of paper that says, hey, you know a lot now. We worked hard. We achieved. We acquired. We became. It talks to us. This quote is directed at us. The deepest need in your life is to know God and to love him as much as he loves you. That will control almost every other choice you make. And that's what Henry Nouwen was trying to say. Jesus put it this way, the thief, Satan, comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And you and I all have gotten to a place in our lives and acquired enough to know that stuff is an empty road. It's climbing the ladder of success only to realize you leaned your ladder against the wrong wall. That's what this world teaches us. James wanted his people to live the life Jesus had taught them to live. And he wanted them to have their best lives now here on earth but eternally as well. There is such a thing as treasure in heaven, and that needs to matter most. Jim closed his sermon with what has now become the mission statement for our little chapel out there at PK. We um, don't take up an offering, and we don't count, and we don't do a lot of the things. The phrase we have that everybody loves at our chapel is don't church it up. <laughs> That's the phrase they use out there, don't church it up. Don't get distracted by a lot of the stuff that churches have to be distracted by. Instead, we take up an offering and like a little bit of it goes to the maintenance of the building. The rest of it all goes to helping people in the community who have needs. We go in and we fix somebody's life when their house burns to the ground. And we do a lot out there. We also have a program where we take care of pastors who are broken and need some time off. Um, that's what we do with our chapel service. And so uh, this became the mission statement last week for our chapel service. It is to know Christ and to make him known. If you need a mission statement for your life, it's not a bad one. Know Christ and make him known. It'll be very hard to sin if that's your goal. And James taught his people again to live wisely. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by his good deeds, 
by a good life, by the deeds done in the humility that comes from God's wisdom. That's the definition of godly. Sin is possible right now because sin is knowing what you ought to do and not doing it. So be careful before you leave this room that you don't take James's words and refuse to live them. Let's pray. God, it's hard to hear this, but we know it's true. Father, take everything in us that is arrogant or prideful or that causes us to think we know. And may we submit it to you, Lord God. May the goal of our life be to love you as much as you love us. And then, Father, from that relationship, may we love others as you've called us to love them and live a life that leads people to know you. Please, God, let us not leave here thinking that these words are anything less than your will for our life. We take our plans and submit them to you, O oh God. In the name of Jesus and for his sake.